Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Gigantic federal spending programs outside of regular appropriations look like a big opportunity to small and minority-owned businesses. That's according to a group called Reimagining Main Street, which surveyed its constituents. Joining me with more, the executive director of Reimagining Main Street, Tammy Halevi. Ms. Halevi, good to have you with us. Good morning. Glad to be here. And let's begin with Reimagining Main Street. Sounds like redoing hub zones or something, but tell us about your organization briefly. So Reimagine Main Street is a cross-sector, multi-stakeholder network of folks who meet regularly. We started meeting in the wake of the shelter-in-place orders during the pandemic to share intelligence and understand what was going on. Over time, that has evolved to focus on ensuring growth for small businesses and the people they employ on MLK Boulevard, Cesar Chavez Ways, Chinatowns, and Main Streets across the country. And what we do is we've got the network that meets regularly to exchange insights. What are you hearing? What are you seeing? How does it look from your perspective if you're a corporation, if you're an organization that finances small businesses, if you're an organization that is an advocate? And then we do regular surveys of small businesses to understand where they stand on various issues and how that might differ by race, ethnicity, gender, and other dimensions. All right. And what were some of the top-line findings in the most recent survey? It sounds like they really like the Inflation Reduction Act and the Chips and Science Act and some of those other big landmark pieces of legislation. Yep. So what we wanted to understand was how business owners experience contracting in both the public and the private sectors. And what we found that I think is both super important and maybe a little surprising is that diverse owned and small businesses have the capacity for contracting. And they say that government contracting is critical for their business strategies. But the problem is, as you may expect, generally don't think the playing field is level for small and diverse businesses to compete. What is it that tilts that playing field, do they feel? I think there are three things in particular. One is folks told us that they don't typically have relationships with contracting officers. They don't necessarily know when opportunities are available. And frequently, which is a real issue for smaller businesses, the size of the contract is too big for them to credibly compete. Yeah. So those are pretty daunting challenges. And as you probably know, the government spends a significant portion, probably 24 percent of contracting dollars, but it seems to be within a closed universe of small businesses. Indeed. So federal contracting in fiscal year 2022 exceeded $690 billion. So we're talking about real money. We're talking about real opportunities, and that's just at the federal level. Uh, Folks in our surveys also, of course, compete for state and municipal contracts as well. But the opportunity is huge, and frankly, it's not just an opportunity for the business owners. It's opportunity for a more flexible supply chain from the contracting side, and it's an opportunity for innovation and competition as well. Do you think that perhaps your constituent members are looking too much at doing direct prime contracting, where you have to know a lot, and it can take two years from the time you begin to try to get the first contract, versus having a position on one of the large government-wide acquisition contracts or subbing you know, for a big prime? 
So it's interesting. We asked folks how they compete. And as you would expect, there's a broad distribution of respondents in the survey who are primes versus subs. And many of them compete as both, sometimes as prime, sometimes as sub. I think there's a different set of challenges when you're competing as a sub. But I think your point is very well taken that there are lots of different ways for a small and diverse business to compete for federal contracting. We're speaking with Tammy Halevi. She's executive director of Reimagining Main Street. And what does the population that you deal with look like in terms of what it is they offer? Because lots of small businesses enter the market as, say, IT services contractors, but that's pretty competitive. Maybe someone needs a new manufacturer of gyroscopes for the DOD. That's not so easy. Yep. So the sample in the survey was broadly distributed, virtually every industry you can think of, and a whole range of offers, products and services, high tech and very low tech. We did pull out a segment of the survey to understand businesses that could compete in the Investing in America program. So as you mentioned, IRA, CHIPS, and the rest of it. And Nearly a third at 29% of the respondents compete in what we would characterize as investing in America businesses, manufacturing, high tech, green tech, construction. And many of those businesses are winning contracts today. So competing effectively, what we did see was that there was a large portion of businesses in the sample who don't know what the Investing in America opportunities are and how they might compete. So there's a bit of a mixed story there. Those who are you know, making the high-tech gyroscope are frequently unique and well-positioned, and others who either could be making the high-tech gyroscope because they have an adjacent capability that could be applied, don't necessarily know where and how to compete. In other words, the government is a gigantic opportunity living right next door to them. They just can't find the front door to get in. That's exactly right. It's a challenge to know which door to open uh, and maybe what's behind door number three. Sure. And from your experience, what do you think the government could do, the agencies could do, the contracting officers even, to maybe make it easier for people to understand how to get in that front door? I think there's a few things. The first, and the Biden administration has done quite a good job, is intentional engagement, both setting targets, establishing incentives, and making it clear that competition should include small and diverse-owned businesses. I think the second piece is related to this size dimension, and that is unbundling contracts so that they can be competed in more let's call it digestible chunks that can be more closely managed and arguably more competition for the sort of right-sized contracts. And what about some of the reporting and compliance requirements that, frankly, make people find the front door and say, forget it, I'm not going there? Run run for the back door. Look, the survey respondents told us universally that Government contracting is far more burdensome than corporate contracting, and that was obviously among the sample who compete for both. I think there are ways probably to reduce that burden, but let us be clear, there's an obligation for much of that reporting and much of that transparency, and so striking the balance is not an easy thing. If you use large corporates as a proxy for some government agencies, there are ways to reduce the administrative burden and still achieve all of the necessary components of on-time delivery and quality delivery, but it's government. Sure. 
And just a detail question, did security clearance requirements come up at all in the survey? Interesting. We asked a few questions about barriers. We asked questions about financial barriers. We asked about IT barriers. And we did have uh, security clearances ever prevented you from getting a contract. The share of respondents for whom the security clearance was a significant barrier was far lower than others. Not going to say it wasn't an issue, but did not emerge as um, kind of top of the list. So the barriers then are Relationships with contracting officers, awareness of opportunities, size of the contracts. For the majority of businesses, financing is not a challenge, but for the businesses for whom financing is a challenge, it's a persistent challenge. And for the most part, if we can solve the awareness to compete and the size of the contracts, I think a larger share of government contracting could move to small and diverse businesses. Yeah, maybe we need community college classes and how to operate SAM, you know, so people could <laughs> find out what's going on. I'm sure you, the enrollment would be high. Tammy Halevi is executive director of Reimagining Main Street. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information about that survey at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Now. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. 
Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Right. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, 
And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus. Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth, and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions 
expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.